Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. Now let's jump into uh, what you said about Ephesians. Yeah, and again, I, I see this as tying in, and, and I don't know that we need to spend a long time on this, but he, he's got this beautiful bunch of verses about girding up your loins and and uh, taking on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation and sword of my spirit. All this is really coming right from Ephesians. But the interesting thing is, and again, covenant's on my brain, but I'm going to feel okay about it because you told me I could. You so could. Um, the, the promises in the covenant include words like, I will be your shield. I will be your protector, right? I think the idea is that, that protection is one of the blessings promised to Israel. If we're going to look for those blessings, it's one of the blessings promised. And so, again, I, I see this as a logical transition. We're talking about the covenant and the keys of the kingdom that have been committed as part of this. And as a result, I want you to gird up and be ready, both to be protected but to go out and do the battle that will bring other people into that protection. A cohesive section, I think, that helps us understand what God wants us to do and how it's tied into the sacrament and doing the sacrament with an eye single to his glory. Uh, I can't not equate the armor of God with the sacrament because I think of the priests up there saying that they may always have his spirit to be with them. And I think of the sword of the spirit and how we go and we we rearm every time we go to the sacrament table. And as my mind is racing here, I'm thinking about looking back to the sacrament table like, like it's an altar, the body and the blood of Christ, looking forward as if the sacrament table is a table of communion where we will have a sacrament meeting again with Christ as we've just talked about. And I see it both as a table and an altar kind of. That works because anciently, I mean, often sacred meals were associated with sacrifices. And the idea is that, mm. that you're this is a communion. You enter into this together, right? So I, I think it's intended to be understood that way. I love it. that, And I love to Tell, I used to tell my ward when I was a bishop that, uh, you know, it says in the handbook we shouldn't have visual aids for sacrament meeting, but there is a visual aid and it's bolted right there to the floor. And every week that you come in, you have a visual aid of the Savior's mercy and his love and his sacrifice for us. And I just think it's, how do you miss this visual aid of the Savior? And, and it's not, we're, we don't wheel it in at Christmas and Easter. It's right there every single week. And how beautiful and merciful that is that the Lord would say, come back, let's do this again. Wow. And, and I think it does give us that protecting power it's talking about and that you talked about, that that, that the covenant sword of renewal the gives us both the sword of the spirit, but all uh, just protection, right? It, yeah. It, the, renewing that covenant is protection. This is amazing to me because here's Joseph on his way to get some wine. Right. He's like, we got to get some wine. And the Lord's going, okay, yeah, wine. The wine's important. Actually, let's talk about the reason we do all this. And I like what you said, Carrie, because I had never tied in the armor of God with the covenant, but almost as if the Lord is saying, you got to, we're going to restore the gospel. We're going to restore the covenant and we're going to gather Israel and it's going to be a battle. So put on, put on your armor uh, with the, with the sacrament, put on your armor Take on your covenants uh, and and be ready. Uh, this spiritual protection that comes, um, I man, this this to me is a beautiful section. You know what's funny is I see these sections one way, and then we talk about them, and now I'm like, this is the best section ever, right? Like, as, <laughs> <laughs> this one is the best one. 
I just always like to picture Joseph when he gets home to Emma, and Emma says, so where's the wine, right? This happens to me all the time. <laughs> well, I, I sent you out to get some. Where's the wine? But he's got a good excuse. And he says, well, <laughs> I, I, I met someone. Let's talk about this. Let's, yeah. let's talk. Right? Hey, great, you know, great family conversation. Why not, yeah. why not finish this? What did happen? Did they go back? Did they finish the meeting? Sounds like it. Did they get confirmed? Were they able to take the sacrament? Yeah, they, they made grape juice, right? They made it right there. So it clearly ends up not being fermented because mm -hmm. it's, so it's okay. I mean, sometimes we say, oh yeah, wine, when it talks about it in the scriptures is not fermented. No, they and they use fermented wine many times after this as well. So that's not what it is. But in this case, they just squoze some grapes right then, made their own grape juice, and they, they did the whole thing. That's so fantastic. Uh, and uh, you know what? I've often thought in the Gospel of John, when the Savior has his um, talk with the woman at the well, he, that he was preparing the world for a sacrament that uses water uh, because he calls himself living water, yep. right? And so he 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 makes sure, I, I often think that was kind of just squozing in there because yes, we're going to use wine for a while, but we're going to we're going to use water because it mattereth not, like you said. Uh, oh, and by the way, that is a great symbol of me. Look at John chapter four, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, I've, I've got it all prepped. In John chapter seven, uh, living water. And then is, the, is it in Alma somewhere where it talks about partaking of the bread and waters of life freely? And I've always thought, oh, is that an allusion to the sacrament right there? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Oh, you, for those of you listening who wonder why we get so excited, this is our idea of a good time. Yeah. Just so you know, <laughs> like if this you're going, our wow. kids think we're strange. Yeah, it really is. Dad, can't we just finish the yeah. chapter? I'm like, no, no, no. This is amazing. You're going to want to see this. <laughs> yep. Right. It reminds me of Alex Baugh. Well, he's going to come on the podcast soon um, saying to his kids, that is where Wilford Woodruff was ordained an apostle. You put your hand on that. I'm going to take a picture. Right. Uh, we get, we as dads get so excited about this, about these things. And, but they're exciting. Once you yeah. catch the vision of section 27, once it clicks, it's exciting stuff. The yeah. covenant is exciting. You can see why President Nelson is so excited. How, I, 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 how old is President Nelson? And here he is still so excited about the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, man. You can feel it when he talks. The greatest work you could ever be involved in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't take those kinds of words lightly, huh? <laughs> yeah, he uses really strong words, doesn't he, when he talks about it? <laughs> he said, I think at one point he said to the youth in that youth meeting with uh, Sister Nelson, he said, this ought to be the yeah. most important part of your life. This ought to be the most important part of your life, right? Uh, and to me, I mean, that's a, that's that we, we can't, like you said, Carrie, we can't miss that. Yeah. You can't let those words fall to the ground, as it were, right? Let's move into section 28, Carrie. Uh, the heading tells us that a church member by the name of Hiram Page, who we've heard of before, he's one of the eight witnesses that we talked about. Uh, he claimed to be receiving revelation from a certain stone, which we've talked about Joseph Smith's here, stones here before, um, but for the entire church. And it seems like the Whitmers, who I believe Hiram Page was a member of the Whitmer family. Yeah. Um, I think he had influenced the Whitmers, including Oliver Cowdery, who who is also a member of the the Whitmer or about family. to become one. Yeah, is he not married yet? He's not, not he's, quite yet. Okay, uh, how do you explain how explain to us what was happening and what led up to this revelation? Yeah, th so there are so many fascinating things here, but you're you're right. So they've been in harmony with Emma's family, um, and things are getting dicey there. There's a lot of persecution. That's why they couldn't do the the confirmation and so on. Right? There, there's a lot of tough stuff going on there. And even uh, Emma's father and mother are no longer so thrilled with having them there, and they're not able to shield them 
as much. And so they're they're thinking of going back to Fayette, and that's where they decide to have uh, – and Fayette's where they'd lived and kind of finished translating the Book of Mormon and so on, right? But uh, that's where they're going to have this conference. So they're going back for this second conference, um, the first one in April. This one's in September. And um, as they get there, they, they've heard – uh, about this uh, stuff that Hiram Page, he's been receiving through this stone um, some inspiration revelation, in particular about Zion. And and as you said, Hiram Page has married one of the Whitmer daughters. Uh, Oliver Cowdery will soon marry a Whitmer daughter, I think about a year and a half later, uh, somewhere in that range. Um, but he, he has become very good friends with the Whitmers. I mean, the, the Whitmers are a, a key family in the church, right? And uh, And that's why they're all part of the eight witnesses, and that's why Hiram is, because he's, he's, he's the brother-in-law, right, and so on. And, and I don't think Hiram has any bad intents here. The fact of the matter is the church is still figuring out what's going on. Like you said, this is the four-month-old church, right? This is the little baby church trying to figure out what's going on. And, and it's so wonderful to have the principle of revelation restored and inherent in there, and we still get this today, we preach this, everyone should be uh, receiving revelation, everybody, right? And in fact, the way Moses puts it is, he wishes that that everyone in Israel would be a prophet. A- and it's interesting because in the days of Moses, they actually have the same problem. Moses, revelation is restored; things are going for them right. And and Moses is is the the prophet receiving revelation. He tells everyone be a priest. Everyone uh, receive revelation. Aaron and Miriam come to him and say, "Hey, uh, we receive revelation. You're taking too much upon yourselves." And God has to kind of set that right. A little while later, Korah and a bunch of Levites say, "Hey, we receive revelation. You're taking too much upon yourselves." It's it seems to be inherent this idea that once revelation is restored. And the idea that we should all receive revelation, that we all start receiving him for everyone in every sort of way, right? And then God has to say, hang on, personal revelation is for you. I need some kind of order in my church or in my kingdom. And so we can't have everyone receiving revelation for everybody else. We're going to have a structure where this works. And I don't think you can blame anyone for not getting that until God teaches it. And and God could have taught it at the very beginning— and he didn't. Now, I can't read God's mind, but I just kind of make the assumption it's because he doesn't want to quash the idea that people should receive personal revelation. He wants oh, to encourage wow. that idea. Yeah. He just mm-hmm. doesn't want them to say that they can all receive it for the whole church. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Section 28 is about, is establishing how revelation works organizationally for the entire church, which is separate from how revelation works for you as an individual. Right. And I love that he brings up Moses. Yeah. And and what do you think that means, Carrie? That 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 Joseph, uh let's see, the end of verse uh two, Joseph Smith Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. He rece- he's better at it, or what does that mean exactly? Well, and I, I think again we want to look at the context because this is hot on the heels. In June, he's gotten Moses chapter one which expands your view of who Moses is, right? This is Moses who has a vision where he sees every soul on earth and and has this deep communion with God. And then Satan comes and he has a tussle with Satan and then Satan leaves and Moses has a more comprehensive vision of seeing every soul and every particle on earth, right? After Moses chapter one, you have a different understanding of Moses than you did before that. Um, and they've just received that. Uh, I don't know that... Everyone has read it, but I, I'm convinced that 
lots of people know Joseph has received it and that some people have had the chance to read it. So they've got a new conception of what it means for Moses to be a prophet. I have never connected that before that, oh, that's so cool that Moses is brought up here and they just received the book of Moses and maybe some have even read Moses chapter one, which is amazing. Yeah. Let's make sure that everybody understands this, uh, Carrie, that the book of Moses is Joseph Smith's He's yeah. going through the Bible, and it's Genesis. It's yeah. basically the JST of Genesis, yeah. However, Moses 1 is brand new. So yeah. can you kind of explain where the book of Moses, you know, its structure, where it comes from, and how it's connected to the JST? Yeah, so the, uh, I would say Moses 1 is the preface to Genesis, like section 1 is the preface to uh, the, the Doctrine mm. and Covenants, right? So somewhere in that same time period that Joseph receives the, the visions of Moses, as he calls it, um, that will eventually be compiled in what we call the Book of Moses, but somewhere in there as he receives it, he's also told to go and translate the Bible. We don't know if he has that vision and then is told, now go translate the Bible, or if he's told to translate the Bible and then the next step is this and then and so on. But he does immediately after that start to sit down with an English copy of the Bible to go through and, and correct it and make additions to it by inspiration. And that's when he's going to get what we call Moses 2, 3, 4. All of those are the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. So the book of Moses is, well, we call it the Joseph Smith translation. He called it the new translation. Others call it the inspired version. The book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first several chapters of Genesis. And it had so much new material that it doesn't work as an appendix or a footnote, right? Joseph, it, it was so much new material, he published it in the church's newspaper, and then uh, eventually that gets compiled into a booklet called The Pearl of Great, Supply, Great Price that eventually becomes the scripture of The Pearl of Great Price. But really all it is, is well, when I say all it is, that makes it sound like it's not much. It, it, it's <laughs> amazing in a ton, but we understand it best if we understand this is the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis and Moses 1 is the preface. Yeah. Oh, that that's wonderful. And I want to remind our listeners of something. Do you remember John, uh, Dr. Janice Johnson said about translation? She said, be careful when you hear that word that you don't automatically yeah. assume translation because this is Joseph taking it from English to English. Yeah. <laughs> so, and giving us something so, that wasn't there in the first place. Right. Right. And it's in, brand in the English new, so. version he's looking at. Yeah. Right. So I like the term she gave us with translation. She said, think of translated beings, of perfecting them, mm -hmm. of, of what did she say, John, of, 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 of transforming right bringing something to a higher level a higher plane um, they're 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 clarified and if you look at the webster's dictionary definition of translate in joseph smith's day that's actually its first definition its first definition yeah transform is, is, is to transform or change yeah because yeah. we use that term Joseph Smith translation, and my students will ask, "Well, what language was it in before?" I'm yeah. going, "No, no, no. That's a that's a yeah. it's a different definition of translation." I think in this in this case. Uh, so um, let's get back into section twenty eight. Then um, was it? Do you think? Do you think it was an awkward moment for Joseph Smith because he didn't want to discourage people from receiving yeah. revelation? I know something in my reading of Joseph. It was always go to the Lord yourself. Yep. You can receive your own answers. And yet here he's saying, well, yes, and but we got to have yeah. stewardship. We've got to have who can receive revelation for who, right, involved in this work. It's especially awkward because uh, his closest friend and in a way ally is Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver Cowdery is oh, close with Hiram right. Page. And Hiram Page has convinced Oliver. Oliver believes that these are revelations from God. And so does the whole Whitmer family. And so it's kind of Joseph against everyone else 
in saying, yeah, this stuff isn't so good. I think I read it this time. It's uh, there's a whole 62 members of the church at this point, right? Yeah. Now it's ten times what they had in April. Don't get me wrong. That's yeah. that's wonderful. Uh, I would love to go ten times, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we could handle that kind of growth, but um, that had to be an odd, you know, an awkward moment of yes and no. Yeah, and and I think it can't be easy. Joseph is often put in the position of being the Lord's mouthpiece to say. My mouthpiece is important. Don't mess with him, right? That's that's an awkward place just to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let me be the one to say this about me, but really, it's from God, and it's true. It, it is right, but that's just got to be a little bit awkward as well. And especially, he has to take Oliver aside and and convince him of this before he presents the revelation to everyone. And and, and in a lot of ways, he is doing exactly what he will later receive revelation to do, which is take thy brother aside and between he and thee alone work this out, right? Don't do this in public. So he works with Oliver and he gets Oliver to work with Hiram so that by the time they will read this revelation, which the, it, it were, we understand was received just days before the conference. So by the time they get to the conference, Oliver and Hiram are okay with this revelation. I, I, again, it's just a fantastic example of Joseph doing things under correct principles. He, he, he could have easily just gone to the conference, read this revelation, and how horrible that would have been for Hiram and Oliver. To, to But when they're prepared and ready to support him ahead of time, then it's a great unifying experience. Wow. that's That, that just that tells you about the inspiration of the prophet, but it also tells you about his character. That he wasn't—he wasn't out to to make people feel foolish publicly, or uh, he w- he just wanted to do things right. I think. And that that advice is in the revelation. Go go alone in verse eleven. Uh, Again, thou shalt take thy brother Hiram Page between him and thee alone. And I, you know, that's uh, that's like the Lord dismissing the group. Um, the woman in taking adultery in John chapter eight, dismissing the group, and then he talks to her one on one, and has such respect uh, for someone even in that position. I, I like that. Okay, um, we've mentioned some of these verses. We've uh, jumped into it. Carrie, do you have any specific ones you want to uh, to highlight and look at in section twenty eight and talk about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the the key is given as we've already mentioned verse two, but let's make sure we, we read the second part. Let's make sure we get that first part. No one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith Jr. That's a principle that is still true today, right? The only one who can give direction for the entire church, the only one who can receive revelation for the entire church, is the presiding high priest or president of the church, and that's just how it is. Now. Typically in our day, he's going to do that in conjunction with the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve, right? But it has to come from there down. And so verse two is in some ways one of the most important verses for church organization in all of scripture. This is the way it works, right? Now, verse four, if thou art led any time, at any time by the comforter to speak or teach or at all times by way of commandment of the church, thou mayest do it, but thou shalt not write by way of commandment, but by wisdom, right? And so... The idea is, as you receive inspiration, go do it. You're inspired to preach, preach repentance, go do it. You're inspired to do this, go do it. But don't say you're doing it by way of commandment to the entire church. You don't have the the rights or the prerogative to do that. There's only one person that can do that. And that's still in, you know applicable to us today. If you're inspired to say something to someone, do it. Right? Don't pretend, though, that you have stewardship over them unless you really do. 
Right. right. I, I, I like that. I like how you translate the verse into a way I can understand. Uh, and the Lord is saying, it, but by wisdom, I think he's saying, yeah, you yeah. can definitely give advice to other people. You can speak, right? I'm a gospel doctrine teacher in my ward right now. I can speak and teach, and I hope I'm speaking and teaching by the Spirit, by the Comforter. Uh, but I would never say this is revelation for the people in my class. God told me to tell you this. That's right. Uh, the Lord is saying, ooh, temper that a little bit. Just let's let's just let's yeah. help each other. Let's But teach your bishop each other. could do that, right? Right. So that's and that's the that's the thing we need to understand. So in verse nine, this is interesting because this is where he's saying, so Hiram Page, part of his revelations were about where Zion was going to be established. Now that's interesting because we haven't had a lot of talking about Zion up to this point. Although it is possible, we don't know, and it seems like it might be just after this, but it is possible that um, some of the uh, revelations that have to do with Enoch are being received. It seems like okay. a, that's coming after that, but it, it could come right before it. In, in, in one way or another, either this just precedes it or it's just preceded by it. But this, this idea we were talking about earlier that um, the that we're getting step by step. God's just giving him a little bit more and a little bit more. Somehow this idea is interacting with what they're going to learn about Zion by learning about Enoch. Right. Yeah. The but, Lord has dropped the Lord has dropped little hints along the way. The cause of Zion. I have yeah. seen his weeping for Zion. You're yeah. going, what's Zion? And now we're gonna hear yeah. we're gonna And it's and it's mentioned it a, little a little in the Book of Mormon, but not a ton, right? So right. um but that's what Hiram has been uh receiving revelation for, but it's false revelation, right? So God's letting him know, well, you don't know where the city of Zion is. I know, and I'll tell you at some point, but I'm not telling Hiram, I'm gonna tell Joseph. Right, and that's that's kind of the key uh, to this whole thing, uh, and and so in the meantime, he's saying don't you know, don't don't go off building high, uh, Zion anywhere that anyone is telling you until I tell Joseph where it's going to be, and that's really what the the next couple of verses are until we get to verse um, twelve. So I don't know if one of you would like to talk a little bit about verse twelve then, or well, yeah, I want to come back just to verse six where he says, "Thou shalt not command him who is at thy head and at the head of the church." It's interesting to me that some that Joseph maybe uh, to some people seems like someone you can overstep a little bit, right? It's just kind of someone, I, yeah, yeah, Joseph, I'm gonna do that, and then I'm gonna take over from here. And the Lord's everybody back up. He's still he's still the one I'm talking to, um, and. This would be, like you said, Carrie, a really awkward place to be, uh, but it's an important place mm -hmm. to be. Uh, it, to say we can't have more than one person receiving revelation for the church because then we're going to be serving two masters, right? We're going to be trying to go east and west at the same time. Uh, so the Lord is saying, listen, this is a not so much a he's more important but he's the one I've chosen. This is how we're going to do this. And that's the same thing with my bishop, my stake president, right? I, yeah. I might, president. they might not, right. They might not have the personality where I can, you know, I can go get running ahead, but the Lord's saying, easy, easy. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't command him that is at thy head. Yep. He'll later say this by saying, my house is a house of order, right? It's the same idea. We can't just get too confused here. So Yeah. So maybe our little baby church, has stumbled a little bit, but that's okay. All children stumble. All, you know, yeah. I never got mad at my toddlers for stumbling. I was like, how dare you? In this house, we walk, <laughs> right? Uh, they are, they're learning. Yeah. They're yeah. learning and, as they go. And I do think that this was part of the, the process of learning about revelation and that revelation was the, the first important principle. And then stewardship and order was the second important principle. And it was taught that way and, and teaching it that way 
you're going to have to stumble. So verse 12, for behold, these things have not been appointed unto him, neither shall anything be appointed unto him. And this is Hiram Page who in the verse before it says Satan has deceived Hiram. So not going to be appointed unto Hiram, uh, neither shall anything be appointed unto Hiram uh, or unto any of this church contrary to the church covenants. And I do think while we've been talking about covenants a lot, I think this is specifically referring back to section 20, which is the Articles of Covenants of the Church, this this organization. So this is another crucial step of organizing the church. And this is something we're just going to have to keep our eye on throughout this year of studying church history, that the Lord organizes it just a little bit at a time, right? So to begin with, it's a first and second elder. It will eventually become a first presidency and then a first presidency and quorum of the 12. But it's not all of that all at once. He's given him, we could quote Isaiah, line upon line, precept upon precept. He's just given them a little bit. And as they're they're ready for the next step, then the next step and the next step. And uh, and so this is one of those next steps in understanding church organization that started with section 20. Ooh, I, I like that a lot. All things must be done in order and by common consent in the church. That's this idea that everybody takes part, right? That everybody gets a... a I want to say a vote, but everybody gets a voice, right? Well, and it, it, it is it, in a way it is a vote, but not the way we think of voting, right? And we we had this uh, actually in section twenty. It says the same thing that uh, that P, when someone is appointed to do something, then it's by consent of the whole church, right? Uh, and that's exactly why. So we actually read that in my "Come Follow Me" family scripture study with my family this morning, and I told them, you remember on Sunday. When we sustain so-and-so, this is why we do it. It's by revelation, and it's there in section 20, and it's here in section 28. It is by revelation that when someone is appointed to something, we all get the chance to say we sustain that or we don't sustain it. If we don't sustain it, then we can go talk about why, but in the end, it, it comes down to the person who's in charge. So it goes back to that stewardship thing, right? So this is that same tension we were talking about. We all get personal revelation, but there's someone who receives revelation for the whole church. That person can put someone forward and say, we'd like to sustain this person to do this. We all get to say whether we support it or not. That doesn't mean we're making that determination, but we get to be part of this. And it gives us the opportunity, if we think there is something that that, that presiding authority should know, then we can go tell them, right? Which is what happens even in general conference, where they say, if there was a, a dissenting vote, please talk to your stake president. The stake president can bring it to the general authorities and so on and so on, right? So that everything is done in order. The name of the church itself is instructive. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And then there's another of. There's two ofs of Latter-day Saints. It's his and it's ours in a way. We have a participation in it. And uh, there's a hierarchy in it too. It's the church of Jesus Christ, but it's, we, we don't vote in people or vote people out. It's not that kind of thing as you've just talked about, but I've always loved the double of in the title of the church. It's ours too, by common consent. Uh, I like that a lot, John. Um, yeah, what was Hiram Page's reaction to Joseph? Uh, Oliver, it seems like, humbled himself and said, okay, I, I, I'll follow you, Joseph. And then, uh, then Oliver went and, and convinced Hiram. And Hiram also uh, said uh, then, okay, I'm okay with this. And, and they agreed that they would get rid of the stone. We actually have two different accounts of what happened to the stone he was using, so we don't know which is correct. One says that they ground it up a, a, into powder and got rid of it. But then another guy later says, oh, yeah, well, we had that stone for years. We just got rid of it later on. And so who knows exactly what happened. But it is clear that they all said, okay, 
uh, Oliver convinced Hiram, and then when the two of them were on board, then everyone else was easier to get on board, and that he would forsake this stone, and uh, and that it was of the devil. And that brings up another important point. Um, Joseph had a seer stone, right? And the Urim and Thummim are seer stones. So again, this is just kind of natural for people to think, well, he has one, you know, should, I, I could have one, and so on. Joseph was not opposed to the idea of people having seer stones. He thought that was great. In fact, he was trying to tell Parley P. Pratt where he could go find one. And he described it for him. I think it was some tree in Buffalo, if I remember right. And Parley never went got it. So maybe we should get a field trip and go find <laughs> that thing. Go I, luck. But, I go to but, Buffalo uh, a lot. I love to yeah. go. <laughs> but uh, so he wasn't opposed to this idea. And, and really, in the end, a seer stone is an object that helps us with inspiration. Right, it helps us receive inspiration. In their day, in their culture, that's how they're expecting to find it. In our day, so for us, we think of a seer stone as uh, listen to the tabernacle choir and go to the celestial room, right? It's the thing that helps us uh, focus and be open to inspiration. I think when the Lord says he speaks to us according to our language and, and culture, that that means not just whether it's English or Portuguese, but it's also this is how you expect me to speak to you. Someone else expects it in a different way. Maybe they're expecting a dream, so it can be dreams, and I'm expecting it when I'm in the temple, so it comes to the temple. He'll, he'll work with us where we are. For them, seer stones was part of that, um, but it was easy to be deceived. And he was deceived, and fortunately, he took her. Uh, uh, Hiram Page should be a role model for us. I would guess at some point we're all deceived on something. I, I'd be shocked if that doesn't happen. Hiram Page accepted correction. And and this was probably pretty tough. He'd been public about this. He had things written down. A lot of people are following him. This is kind of prestigious for him. It's kind of exciting. And then he gets some correction. He says, actually, you're, you were deceiving. You were believing stuff from Satan. Right? That's got to be a little bit humiliating. <laughs> and uh, I know I'd have a hard time if if yeah. that you know if the prophet said that to me. Well, you know, that was a nice book, but it was actually from Satan. Thanks for writing it, though. Um, uh, and so that would be that would be tough. Uh, but Hiram Page accepts it. And he says, no. let's get rid of the stone. I will try and do things the way that you're, you're teaching me to. Um, and he's, unfortunately, the, the sad ending of the story is that eventually the whole Whitmer family has some problems and leaves the church. And as part of the Whitmer family, he leaves as well. Um, and that's a sad thing. But he never, ever, ever denied his testimony as one of the eight witnesses. Um, and, and neither did any of the other Whitmers. And so... Uh, while he while he left the church, he didn't really ever leave his testimony, and that's that's a comforting thing. Oh, I really like that that idea of I will be humble and I will take correction. Uh, I love that he should be an example for us. Uh, but we need to make sure that the person giving us that correction is the right person, right? To to offer that correction because I, you know I can't go over to John, pull him aside, and say I'm going to give you some. Correction. I've tried a couple of times, and yeah. just I was last say, week he, he you told did me that. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, I can I can see people taking that idea of I am at the head, so I can start doling out correction. Where Joseph wasn't that way. I don't get the feeling that Joseph was was here. Let me correct everyone in everything. So I like the. We're kind of we're walking a, a beautiful tension, like you said, Carrie. And and I love the way the Lord ends it on a positive note as well in this revelation, right? So uh, we get verse fourteen: "Thou shalt assist to settle all these things according to the covenants of the church." So this goes back to this idea: help help the church do things the right way, right? And that's before thou shalt take thy journey among the Lamanites. This is the, this precursor to this really important journey that's going to end up. Yes, it takes the gospel to the Lamanites, which is part of what's the promise in the covenant, and especially the covenant made to the Nephites, but it's also going to end up in the starting of Kirtland, right? So 
Um, but I love verse 15 and 16. And it shall be given thee from time to time, thou, uh, thou shalt go until time that thou shalt return and what thou shalt do. So he's saying, sometimes I'm going to tell you to go out and do things, and then I'm going to tell you when to come back. You're going to be given callings. You're going to be given assignments. You're going to be given missions and, and so on. Verse 16, and thou must open thy mouth at all times, declaring my gospel with the sound of rejoicing. Amen. All right, that's the that's the positive encouragement. Yeah, Hiram, you got deceived here. Oliver, you got deceived here. But you know what? I've still got some good things for you to do. And if you're willing to follow, you are still going to receive revelation. It just won't be for the whole church. But you are going to receive revelation from me. I'm still going to talk to you. You follow that revelation and great things will happen. And you'll teach my gospel and you'll do it with rejoicing. That's a great message. Yeah. It's a very positive idea, right? And I, I keep, we come back to this idea of a little church, but I think of when I was a, a young dad and trying to give those little kids some encouragement, right? Yes, yeah. do some correcting, but not, don't, don't, what did you use the, don't quash their, their excitement, yeah. right? For what they're doing. Cause this seems to me to be a, the result of maybe some excitement of, of this unfolding of, of a revelation. Yeah, John, and anything that's, else? That has to keep going. Yeah. We don't want to stop that. I don't want to, uh, this is a good, this is really actually has been a good parenting lesson for me to be careful in my correction, right? Um, I think I, I remember President Faust saying, your correction may be worse than the behavior you're trying to correct. Yeah, right? I've been guilty can, of that any number of times. I just think uh, this is a great point that uh, right now, not only are we getting an emphasis from President Nelson about um, letting God prevail and uh, and being covenant Israel and gathering Israel, this great work of covenant Israel, but also of how do you hear him? And everyone can uh, learn to hear him and receive personal revelation. And I like that you brought that up, Carrie, that that this this was great. Don't want to quash that, but we things are done in wisdom and order and who has the keys and who has the stewardship. Uh, that had to be figured out. And it was sounds like it was figured out fairly, fairly early in this uh, what'd you call it, Hank, a toddler church. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, and I I like this that the Lord is still every section he seems uh, Carrie, you are exactly right. He says, Okay, let me answer this question. Oh, by the way. We're going to go on a little trip to the borders of the Lamanites. Let me drop that out to you a little yeah. bit. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Everyone's got to be thinking, wait, what? Huh? what? We're, we're going somewhere? Yeah. Uh, that's that's fantastic stuff. I mean, so we've talked about President Nelson with the covenant and President Nelson with Hear Him. I mean, don't you just have such a feeling of gratitude that we have a prophet like Joseph Smith or like Moses that is receiving revelation and that's revelation for the entire church and well, during this last, I mean, well, during COVID, but the period leading up to COVID and so on, I, I just keep getting overwhelmed again and again with how inspired President Nelson is in giving us exactly what the Lord would have us have and exactly what we need. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. When he said, the next conference we attend, this was a while ago, the next conference we attend will be unlike yeah. any you have ever attended. I'm going, wow, are we going to have a new video? Uh, right. And, and we was, did. <laughs> yeah, we did have a new video. And wow, was it different than any other conference we have ever attended? Uh, it's just, yeah. Wow. You're right. Exactly right, Carrie. How blessed, uh, how blessed we are. I feel like, you know, Brigham Young saying, every time I think I knew the prophet Joseph, I want to shout hallelujah. 
right? And I think that same thing about President Nelson. Yep. And in the end, that's really the message of Section 28. Be grateful you have that prophet. And that maybe is that the, what's the the very last word? Well, the last word in Section 28 is amen, but the one before that is rejoicing. And as we were looking at that, I thought about, you know, say nothing but repentance. Well, that's a joyful message. That's a, a fresh view about God, about oneself. And here, the gospel ought to be a sound of rejoicing. I like, that's good good way to tie things up. You know, oftentimes when we when we have conflict like this, we either avoid the conversation altogether because we don't like the the awkwardness of the conversation, uh, or we come at it too hard and we we create a negative. We think we basically have two choices, right? Either I can continue to have a good relationship with this person or I can ruin the relationship by telling them the truth. And I think section 28 is an example of you can both be open and build the relationship. It's a little bit more difficult to do. I think it's called uh, have those crucial conversations. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it seems the Lord is saying it's it's you can have conflict, you can resolve it and be better off. And everybody's rejoicing. Everybody's everybody's happy. To me, that's a uh, I I don't know about you two, but I sometimes avoid difficult conversations. Oh yeah. Uh, because it just seems like, oh, I don't want to upset the, I don't want to upset him. Uh, where the Lord's saying, no, it's okay. It's okay. Go take him between you two and go have this talk. It's okay. It's going to work. Trust me. Uh, it's okay for us to talk about you here for a second. I think. Are, are you going to swear or what? <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the most brilliant minds in the church. You've spent, I don't know how old you are, Carrie. You look like you're 25, but. Um, <laughs> You've spent decades studying and teaching from the scriptures. Um, can you walk us through the the life of Carrie Mulestein, Dr. Carrie Mulestein, the Egyptologist, and tell us what the restoration has done for you uh, and what it means to you personally in the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. And and tell us a little, maybe a little bit about your life as a scholar and a and a believing Latter-day Saint. I, I did not want to be a teacher because I felt like they... Didn't get paid well, which turns out to be true. But um, I felt led to, first of all, to be uh, a teacher. I, I want, wanted to be a seminary teacher to begin with. And then I can remember um, sitting in a class one day in the same building that I'm sitting in now, and uh, the Joseph Smith building at BYU. And uh, we had a guest teacher who had just was just finishing a degree from the University of Harvard and I mean, not Harvard, Chicago in uh, biblical studies. And they were kind of interested in uh, hiring her. So she came and taught our class. And when I saw what she could do with the scriptures because of the training she'd received, I realized I don't want to spend the rest of my life wishing I could be better at what I do, but not having uh, paid the price. And so I, I decided, uh, and, and I'm not saying that that's what everyone should do. I think that was a direct prompting for me that I I needed to uh, pay a price to to learn about these things in a, in a different way, right? We each have our own role that we play, and, and it became clear to me that was the role that I needed to play. And so I started uh, studying. That's that's why, you know, when you introduced me, I was already a psychology major, but I started studying Hebrew. That's how I got the Hebrew minor, because I started studying um, the ancient world, and I just got hooked. And I also realized that as much as I enjoyed teaching, I enjoyed researching. I liked both. And, and I liked writing. In fact, my original 
I was a communications major as a freshman. I, uh, my original desire was to be a writer um, and, and uh, maybe a newspaper writer or maybe fiction and kind of both and so on. I liked writing. Uh, so when I found that I could research and teach and write about things that I cared about more than newspaper articles or fiction, um, uh, then I, f- I realized uh, that there was only one job that I could do all of those uh, really well. And uh, so I set my sights on uh, teaching at one of the BYUs. Um, and I, I had some experiences that I won't get into that uh, kind of led me to Egyptology um, and led me specifically to UCLA where I had some fantastic advisors and, and uh, one of them loved to talk about the church. Um, he was one of the, one of the top Egyptologists in the history of Egyptology, just fantastic. He left uh, UCLA to direct uh, an Egyptological program in, in uh, Switzerland and then was made the, the president of that university and then the president of a consortium of universities. I mean, just a really intelligent guy, but he loved to talk about um, the church and about the Book of Abraham and so on. And, and in fact, later, so he went to the University of Basel, which also has a great theology department, and he used to go to their theology debates to represent the Mormon point of view. Um, so uh, I was blessed to have a fantastic um couple of teachers that that taught me. My first job was at BYU-Hawaii, teaching in both the religion and the history department, which allowed me to kind of do both uh, elements of what I love. And uh, I would say just things keep getting dropped in my lap. I I did not intend to direct an excavation that uh, got dropped in my lap. In fact, I told when it was offered to me, I said no. And then I made the mistake of praying about it. That's that's got me any number of times. I have to say that there is a thrill. So I'll say this. I, I, I As you said in, in the little bio, I taught um, history at, at UCLA. I taught history at Cal Poly Pomona. Uh, I, and, and that was specifically, uh, so it was Egyptian history at UCLA. It was the history of uh, uh, the ancient Near East and, and the Iron Age uh, at Cal Poly Pomona. So that's the age that we get the biblical stories in. Um, I loved those experiences, um, but as I did it, I found myself constantly frustrated that at these state schools, I couldn't talk about the things that meant the most to me. And I would have students, right? We're talking about Assyria or Babylon doing things with Israel. And and students would ask me, it was clear, some of those students were Christian and they wanted to, they were asking questions about that. And I could not answer them the way I would have liked to have answered them. And it is so thrilling to be at a place where I can say what I think, where I can say what I believe. And, uh, and conversations like what we've had today or what we, and we have these same kind of conversations with students. That's just exciting, right? Literally, uh, uh, 10 minutes before I was on uh, with you guys, I was teaching, um, the, the plagues and the Exodus story with my Old Testament students. And I bring it in, uh, you know, Egyptian re- religion and Israelite symbolism and some Hebrew and all of it to try and make sense of this picture. And it is just so fun to have a wide arsenal to, to use to say, let's, let's see what we can make sense of. But in the end, the lesson we're taking away from this is God can deliver you. And if, if that was the only thing I was able to teach, I would have been happy with that. I was glad to teach Egyptian religion and, and, uh, about Ma'at and Isfet and so on. But, um, uh, the it's great to be able to have the more important thing at the end, which is to say God will deliver you. Um, in fact, I taught what I, the part of that lesson about the Egyptian symbolism was a, a paper that I wrote as a graduate student that that I won an award for then, but I couldn't put that ending in. And it's so so, so thrilling to be able to 
uh, put that ending in and to have um, comfort uh, when when things are tough. So this is the great thing about uh, doing things because you feel like the Lord has asked you to do them. Um, I won't get into a long, detailed story, but there was one time, as I said, I'm only involved in this excavation. I love it. I love everything about it. You know, I publish on this. It's just fantastic. But um, but I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't felt inspired to do it. So there was a, a time where some things went fairly wrong. Some some crazy things happened. Was, uh, some false reports in the media that uh, caused some crazy things to happen. And I had a, a couple uh, a couple of weeks that were really felt kind of dark because it seemed like I had uh, uh, not through something I'd done wrong, but just the way things had happened that I was causing some problems for the university and and uh, all sorts of things. And I didn't like that. But the thing that got me through was that I could, at each night as I was going to bed and as I was thinking about this, I could say, well, I am doing this because I felt inspired to do it. I've only ever been trying to follow inspiration and do my best. I'm sure I've made mistakes, but I trust that when I'm doing my best to follow inspiration, that the Lord has a plan and he'll take care of it. So right now, I can't see how this particular thing's going to work out, but I know it will because I'm I'm just trying to do the Lord's will. And sure enough, it worked out. And there are all sorts of times where something happens. You're like, oh man, what a mess. What am I going to do about that? And each time you can say, huh, well, I'm doing my best. So I'll just leave the rest up to the Lord. And he always comes through. And that's uh, that's a thrilling, well, again, to go back to the covenant, that's a blessing I can count on because I've made and I'm doing my best to keep covenants. Uh, the, and I'm, I'm part of that Abrahamic covenant. I can count on that the Lord has my back. And that's a, that's a good way to get good rest when you know that the Lord has your back. Thank you, Carrie, for being here. Uh, and thank you, John, of course, for being here again. Like I said, you're my favorite co-host I've ever had. Uh, and I hope you take that the way it's meant uh, <laughs> to be taken. Um, we're grateful for you, our listeners, for your support. Thank you so much uh, to our producers, Steve and Shannon Sorensen. Thank you to our production crew, David Perry and Jamie Nielsen and Lisa Spice. And we hope we'll see you on our next episode of Follow Him. Follow Him.